0: Good morning. I'm Pastor Jay and I would invite you to open your Bibles to the end of your New Testament to the book of 1st Peter or 1 Peter. One of two letters that the apostle Peter wrote. This morning, we're going to talk about facing mistreatment and rejection. And violence and even death and hostility. Uh, specifically, the context here is when genuine Christians are targeted because of their commitment and their loyalty to Jesus in a hate filled culture. Jesus himself pretty much set the stage in John chapter 15 when he said in verse 18, If the world hates you, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. What's interesting is you look at the history of the church. Historically, Christians have looked to stories of martyrs and the persecuted church for inspiration. World Magazine, just a couple months ago, ran an editorial and noted that and how the situation has changed today. They wrote this, Once upon a time... The church took its inspiration from the stories of martyrs who prayed in the midst of adversity and remained faithful even in the face of death. Now, notice next thing. What does it say about contemporary Christianity that we want inspiring stories about religious victories in the here and now? It's almost as if our faith no longer rests on what is unseen close quote if you look at just a classic bestseller in the english language fox's book of martyrs first put out in 1563 the purpose was exactly that to encourage and remind people of the cost of following jesus and to give them support and hope As we continue in our series in 1 Peter, we come to a section in which Peter is reminding true Christians. Now, again, I add the the adjectives true because when you say the word Christian in Western culture, people have all sorts of different definitions. We're talking about someone who has undergone spiritual rebirth, who has owned their sin, and who is following Jesus as Savior and Lord. That describes a number of us here today, but I know there are some here today that that's not true of. And so... Understand Peter's target audience. He's talking to those who are genuine born-again Christian. This is the third time in this letter he has said true Christians are going to have to face suffering. So obviously it's a theme, hence the subtitle of our series: Finding Hope in Hostile Times. And his message is this: real hope is available to true believers if they have come to him and acknowledge Christ as Lord and have the power of the Holy Spirit living inside them. In other words, they've gone through spiritual rebirth. In other words, they've come to God in His terms. Lots of people come to God on their terms. The whole point of 1 Peter is if we've come to God in His terms and have been born again, we have one with Christ in our union and the power of the Holy Spirit and all the resources we need, even if we have to face death. And so today is a bit of a heavy sermon, but it is a hope-filled sermon. And it's a very important sermon. And if you're a young person here, kids, young people, really want your attention because God may call you into an increasingly hostile culture to take a stand for him, possibly even in full-time ministry, maybe overseas. And so the question is, will you be able to stand and follow that call? We come to chapter 4 in our series, verses 12 through 19. We're just taking this section by section. This is the next section. Peter's addressing two things in this section. One, don't be surprised by the hostility, if you're a Christian. And secondly, how to respond to hostility. And here's where Peter will get very practical at the end of his letter. But first, let's dive in. It's the first verse we're going to spend a good deal of time on. Don't be surprised by hostility. If you know Jesus, Peter's saying, and he's saying it over and over in his letter, we should not be surprised when mistreatment and persecution and hostility, and mockery, and rejection, and harassment come our way, and yet a lot of us are. He says, verse 12, dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. Now obviously, his words could be applied in a general sense to any time a Christian goes through suffering, Having said that, the immediate context here, which is always important to note, is he's talking to genuine Christians who are being targeted specifically for their faith in Christ. Remember, he's writing to people in what is today modern-day Turkey who are being hunted down and killed for their faith. And that's why his letter is full of this kind of language. Increasingly in the West, we are facing hostility. We have not reached the place in most parts of the West, or in Western Europe, or even in Central Europe for the most part where we are facing death. Although D.A. Carson has said more Christians have been killed for their faith in the last 100 years than throughout church history. But that has so far not reached the West. It is coming, and it may come sooner than we think. At this point, most of what we face is hostility, mockery, rejection, and marginalization. Classic case. Just a couple years ago, Vice President Mike Pence's wife, Karen Pence, uh, announced plans that she was going to teach part-time at Emanuel Christian School in Northern Virginia. Some of you may have heard about it. Her announcement drew immediate reaction and criticism from the ACLU and a number of other organizations. And the reason was this, and they said so, because the school she was joining held to a biblically rooted view of human sexuality, meaning they were not all in on the LGBTQ agenda the Wall Street Journal wrote this, quote, a mob of secular leaders has targeted Mrs. Pence for teaching at a Christian school. So what was her crime? Teaching at a school that was doing exactly what it was supposed to be doing, (laughs) teaching a Christian worldview. That brought out the very well-known theologian, Lady Gaga, who jumped into the conversation, by the way, and issued this public statement, to Mike Pence, who thinks it's acceptable that his wife works at a school that bans the LGBTQ agenda. You are wrong, she wrote to Pence, Mike Pence. Quote, you're the worst representation of what it means to be a Christian, close quote. Friends, that is exactly what Peter's talking about. In the Gospels, Jesus explains to his true followers that they are going to face opposition and hostility and persecution and even martyrdom. He is very clear about that. John 16, But he also offers this promise. This is a great promise that anyone here being hassled or opposed or rejected or mocked or harassed for your faith needs to remember. Here's the encouraging promise from Jesus. John sixteen thirty three. in the world, you will have trouble. That's an understatement. But be of good cheer. Why? I've overcome the world. Now, if you say, how did he overcome the world? Through his life, through his death, through his resurrection, and through his ascension. That is how he has overcome the world. Now, I want to take a step back and ask for a minute about the origins of this hatred. Let's talk about it for a minute. Because it goes all the way back to Genesis in what Henry Morris, in his very great book, his title of his book is The Long War Against God. And in that book, he said this is a war that was escalated after Eden, started in Eden, escalated after Eden, but especially went into high gear when God became incarnate in Jesus and launched his ministry on planet Earth. Then it went into full-scale Hatred and war. I want to go back to the book of Matthew. We're actually going to be in Matthew a couple times in this message. Chapter 10 specifically, but also chapter 5. But Matthew 10, we're going to dip into at least twice because Jesus himself talks about the intensity of hatred that true Christians will face. This is so opposite the prosperity gospel. I don't know how you could, the two can exist on the same planet. Because the prosperity gospel is a false gospel. It's everywhere. We export it, sadly, overseas. It's in books in popular literature and on so-called Christian TV. And it's an abomination to God. And Jesus was anti-prosperity gospel. He was all about promise and reward for following the gospel. But he did not preach a message of prosperity. And here is a classic example. Here's Jesus describing the war and the sheer hatred against God's people. Matthew 10, I'm just going to pick up verse 16. through verse 22. Love is imagery. I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Imagine this picture of sheep, little helpless white fluffy things, who are very stubborn and very stupid, among a pack of wolves. That's what he says it's going to be like when you go out. That is not a very encouraging picture as far as physical safety. But Jesus never said following him was safe. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and innocent as doves. Be on your guard. You will be handed over to, not you might be. You will be handed over to local councils and flogged, that is whipped, in the synagogues. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings and witnesses to them and to the Gentiles. And when they arrest you, not if, when... Do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time you will be given what to say for it will not be you speaking but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will betray brother to death and a father his child. Children will rebel against their parents and have them put to death. Sounds like George Orwell's 1984. You will be hated by everyone because of me. But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved. Now, I want to stop there for a minute because Peter's described the hatred. Jesus has described the hatred. We're going to look a little more at his words in just a few minutes than the rest of Matthew 10. I want to ask the question because Peter does not directly address it. Here, Jesus does it directly address it. He does it in other parts of Scripture. I want to ask the why question for a minute. The Bible's very clear about this hatred and violence is going to be perpetrated against Christians and hostility and rejection and opposition and all that. Why? And I just, I want to pose that for a minute for all of us, just as a reminder what's going on. Why does the world hate Jesus so much? And by, contra- by uh, association, his followers, why? why this intense volcanic hatred? And when you dive into the Gospels and take a serious look at them, at a minimum, there's at least three reasons. And I just want to unpack those briefly this morning. And I get these mostly just from looking at the Gospels. The first reason is because of the claims of Jesus. Second reason, the demands of Jesus. And the third reason, the accusations of Jesus. And each of those draws a certain level of hatred. So first of all, his claims generate a certain amount of hatred. Like what? Well, John 14:6. Jesus came along, and Jesus made a lot of claims. You need to know that. And he made some very extreme claims, like John 14, 6. I am the way, definite article, the way, not a way, the way, the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. Now, C.S. Lewis so aptly brings out in your Christianity, when you have that kind of extreme claim and that's what it is it's an extreme claim there's no way to get around that you are forced into a decision at that point about that person you have to make a decision because when someone makes a claim of that nature which is extreme they're either telling the truth or they're deranged and there's been a good deal of those people over the years or they're a charlatan and they're trying to deceive and they know what they're doing Jesus clearly fits in the first one he's telling the truth the evidence shows that but those kind of absolute, we call those absolute truth claims because there's no wiggle room in that kind of a claim. John 18, 37. The reason I was born, this is an interesting one. Here he summarizes the whole purpose of his birth in one verse. The reason I was born and came into the, tru- into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Well, that means if you don't listen to Jesus, where does that put you? Well, that puts you, obviously, on the other side of truth and opposing him. And the problem is this. Young people hear this. This is especially important as you go off to college or even in high school, junior high, but especially as you go off to college, university. Absolute truth claims force a decision, and the world doesn't like that. You can't sit on the fence. Absolute truth claims are threatening I mean, that's that's they draw lines. People don't like lines. They say a day of judgment is coming, and they expose darkness. And they say we are morally accountable to a God. That's the problem with the claims of Jesus. That's why they generate such volcanic hatred. A second reason why the world hates Jesus are the demands of Jesus. Several years ago, John uh, Piper wrote a great book: "The Demands of Je- What well, Jesus Demands of the World." very good book. I think it was about in 2006 that he wrote it. What Jesus Demands of the World. Now, here's a scoop. Some denominations and some people grow up in churches where they see Jesus as kind of a very low-demand Messiah, that he just kind of walked around and threw out some inspirational goodies and some fuzzies and some feel-goods. And when you look at, when you take a serious look at Jesus's teaching ministry, especially his Galilee ministry and the synagogues up around Galilee, It's very clear that the real Jesus was anything but a low-demand Messiah. Kids, it is so critical you get this. He's not a low-demand Messiah. He's a Messiah full of promise, but he also has very high demands. Demands that when understood, often generate great anger. I jotted down a couple of them. He demands that his followers forgive their enemies, no strings attached. He demands that we pray for those who abuse us. He demands that we die to selfish ambition. He demands that we be generous with our resources, especially our money. Talked about that a lot. He demands and he commands us to make war on pride and lust. Not just casual war, but to make war on it. He demands that his followers grieve over their sin and own it. He demands... That we be willing, if we know him, to suffer and die. And he commands his followers to put a high priority on loving their neighbor and the poor and the marginalized. And there are many more. And then he adds in John 14:15: If you love me, you will obey my commandments. And that is the second reason that the world absolutely hates Jesus. Third reason they hate Jesus is his accusations. And let's just be honest. According to the Gospels, nobody could accuse people like Jesus. John 7, 7. The world hates me because. Because why? Because I testify that its works are evil. That's an accusation. Jesus accused people of all kinds of stuff. Obviously, Dale Carnegie wasn't around back then with his book, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Probably a good thing. But Jesus, I doubt would have read it anyways. Jesus accused lots of people, and it's not a category most Christians think about, but he did. He accused people of hypocrisy and selfishness and greed and blasphemy and of serving the devil. John eight forty four, 44, he accused some of the religious leaders of his day, and he said to them, point blank, you belong to your father, the devil. And the bottom line is that although many are initially attracted to Jesus and there's an intrigue in Jesus, you see that as even with a lot of popular celebrities and well-known people, there's this kind of initial, oh, and they're intrigued by Jesus. There's something about him that tends to draw people, whether it's Gandhi or Oprah or the Dalai Lama Or Ellen DeGeneres or Stephen Colbert or Kim Kardashian. They all registered some kind of fondness or allegiance or, oh, interested in Jesus. But the problem is when you drill down and you begin to learn and they begin to learn about the real Jesus and his claims and his demands and his accusations, what was initially intrigue, what was initially some kind of attraction quickly morphs into opposition and even hatred for him. Which is why Jesus says to those who are dead serious about following him. Young people, are you dead serious about following Jesus? If you're dead serious about following Jesus, he says, look at, expect to be marginalized. Don't expect to be popular. Don't try to be in the in group. If God gives you favor with some of them, fine, but don't make that a goal and don't be willing to sacrifice important priorities in your life to be in the in circle. He says, expect to be mistreated, expect to be rejected. You should expect to be lied about and misrepresented and hated. And maybe some of you right now are facing that at school. And if you're standing up for Christ, good for you. He said, maybe it's taking a stand in the marketplace for him or with colleagues. Some right now are getting mistreated and are facing consequences with neighbors, with friends, with extended family. That's a big one. In fact, that's when Jesus even talked about in Matthew 10. If you turn over to verses 34 to 37. Jesus talked about what we can expect often with extended family, even immediate family. Again, these are so counter to how many people perceive Jesus the gentle shepherd. He was a gentle shepherd. He was a loving, grace-filled prophet. And son of God. But he also had some very sharp things to say because he knows what we're up against. And so he says these words Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 to 37 Do not suppose I have come to bring peace to earth. You say, Well, I thought he was the prince of peace. He is making peace with God. And that brings a certain amount of horizontal peace with others at times, but not always. He said, I did not come to bring peace but a sword. I have come to turn a man against his father, a mother against, I mean, a daughter against her mother, a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. And then he adds this, if anyone loves their father or mother more than me, they're not worthy of me. Anyone who loves their son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So Jesus said, expect hostility if you are serious about following him. Now that brings us lastly to, well then, the how question. How do we respond to hostility? And I want to I offer a confession. Here, here's my confession, and probably a lot of us could identify when I go through something that's difficult, when I go through suffering, whether I bring it on myself or somebody else brings it on, or it's, or it's general suffering or hostility for a commitment I've made to Christ or whatever it is, I typically default pretty quickly to why am I suffering? What's the problem here? I mean, I'm a guy. What's a guy do? Guy fixes things, right? So I go into fix it mode. Like, what's the problem? Let's fix this. So I'm not suffering anymore. And a lot of us probably identify with that. Here's, and that's that's where Job went. If you know the story of Job, not Job, but Job. Job is not a classified section in your Bible. It's not Jobs. It's Job. And Job went through a whole series of suffering through the hand of Satan, but ultimately God directed it. And here's the deal. Job asked all the way through his book why he was suffering. He kept asking the why question. And the why question is not forbidden in the Bible. It's cautioned. We're to be very careful with the why question. Paul's very clear about that in Romans 9 when it comes to predestination. Be very careful because why questions quickly morph into accusations against God. That's exactly what happened to Job. His why question became a demand that God explain himself and justify his ways to Job for what Job was going through. And if you know the rest of the story, Job did not get an answer. In fact, he gets to the end of the book and he gets four chapters of God in his face, 77 questions fired off at him and at the end of the whole thing he's reduced to rubble and he says the only intelligent thing he says to the whole book which was I've been an idiot and I repent in dust and ashes and God says now you get it now you get it and God shows himself to be very gracious doesn't he he shows himself to be very good so my point is this the why is almost never answered in the Bible You may get a why as to why you're suffering. Sometimes it does come. But the Bible frankly spends very little ink on the why question. You know where it spends most of its ink? On the how question. And that's where Peter now is going to take up. This is going to serve as our summons. And he's going to give five very practical reminders. These just come boom, 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 boom right in the text. As he walks through the last part of this text, starting in verse 13, and he get, these are very clear in the text, and they're very specific, and they're very practical, and they're very helpful, and they're very hopeful. So let us walk through these, and with this, we will land the plane. Number one, verses 13 and 14. When suffering comes your way, either in a general sense or in the context of this passage, it's because of your commitment to Christ. Rejoice, says Peter, when insult and hostility come your way. Verses 13 and verse 14. Chapter 4, verses 13 and 14. He says, but rejoice inasmuch as as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, You are blessed for the spirit of glory and of God rests on you. So the reason a true Christian can rejoice as they face hostility is that in some true spiritual way, when we participate in the sufferings of Jesus, it brings blessing into our life. He doesn't unpack exactly how all this is true, but... Where where did those words come from? Well, they come from Jesus himself in the Sermon on the Mount when Jesus said, blessed are you when people insult you and strategize against you and say falsely all kinds of evil because of me. Rejoice and be glad. And Peter says the same thing. In fact, twice he says, you're blessed if that happens to you. Second thing he says in verse 15, make sure it's not your own fault. Make sure it's not because of something you did that was foolish or sinful or stupid. Make sure it was something that's legitimate, like you're really suffering for righteousness. So verse 15, if you suffer, it shouldn't be as a murderer or thief or any other kind of criminal or even as a meddler. He had said that earlier in chapter 3. Make sure you're suffering for righteousness. Third piece of advice. So first, what? Rejoice when insult and suffering come because somehow we're participating and we receive blessing. Spiritual blessing from Christ in that. Secondly, make sure it's not your own fault. We're not suffering for doing something wrong. Thirdly, don't be ashamed of when you suffer. Now, Peter doesn't say it here. But I have to believe his own denials of Christ are firmly in his mind. Because what did he do? He denied Christ three times. And that couldn't have been very far from his mind when he wrote this letter. And he wants to remind them, I think, not to do what he did so foolishly when he was embarrassed and ashamed and terrified of being associated with Christ. So he says in verse 16, However, if you suffer as a Christian, do not be ashamed. It's exactly what he was. He was ashamed. That's why he denied Christ three times. But praise God that you bear that name. So Peter reminds those who experience antagonism not to be ashamed of standing with Jesus. Becky and I have had the privilege a number of times talking to different missionaries around the world, and it's very interesting. When they are moved against, when hostility comes, when they're threatened, when even they've been arrested or put in jail for a short period of time, it really affects them one of two ways. You can probably guess that. We have seen some who absolutely hunker down in that uh, they're ashamed, they're fearful, they're fear based. I remember one couple a number of years ago who just basically locked themselves in their house for two years because they were so terrified. And others, it's interesting, when opposition, persecution come, it energizes them, not in a cocky way, but in a way of, no, this is for Christ and kingdom. I will not be shut down here. And if I can't do it here, I'll go do it somewhere else. We have some good friends who got kicked out of the Maldives. And off they went, and they landed a new country, and start right back up, they did. How will you respond? Young people, what are you going to do when hostility comes your way? When opposition, Peter says, don't be ashamed. Don't act in fear. Don't be fear-based about the whole thing. Fourthly, verse 17, it is a good time to take inventory of our lives when opposition comes. For it is time for judgment to begin with God's household. And if it begins with us, what will the outcome be for those who do not obey the gospel of God? So, it's a good time to take inventory. Anytime we're facing hostility or opposition or being mocked or made fun of or being marginalized by our friends, it's a good time to take inventory. So, before we get to the fifth one, review. Rejoice when insult and hostility come. Because we participate in Christ's sufferings and there's blessing. Secondly, make sure it's not our own fault. Make sure we're not suffering for being sinful or doing something foolish. Thirdly, don't be ashamed. Don't be fear-based. Fourthly, take inventory. It's a good time to assess, am I being righteous here? And fifthly, very important. And he says this in verse 19. Commit yourself to God and continue to do good. I want to break my comments down here just a little bit. I want to unpack that last verse. Verse 19, so then, those who suffer according to God's will should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. That's a whole sermon. But let me point out a couple of things. Number one, there's an underlying assumption in that verse. What is it? That God is good all the time. Psalm 110, verse 5. The Lord is good. Yahweh is good, it says, and his loving kindness is everlasting. So, next, notice that not all suffering comes from the devil. This is the great lie of the prosperity gospel. This is the great lie that all suffering, all bad things come from the devil. Peter could not be clear. Those who suffer according to whose will here? God's will. God's will. God is the one ultimately in charge of if we suffer, when we suffer, and how much we suffer. This is the comforting doctrine of God's providence, which comes from the Latin to see ahead. But God not only sees ahead, he is directing our affairs, he is directing when blessing and loss come into our life, he, address, he directly directs uh, affliction into our lives. George Verwer, great founder of Operation Mobilization, said, God appoints discouragement to teach us dependence. And so this is a reminder, the underlying assumption of verse 19, God is all-powerful. Kids, hear that. He's all-wise. He's good all the time. And he can be trusted even when he brings and allows suffering, great suffering into our lives. One of my heroes is Samuel Zwamer. I was reading a little bit this week again about his life, the great apostle to Islam in Arabia and Bahrain and the Middle East. He eventually became a professor of missions at Princeton uh, Seminary for seven years in the 1930s. But Samuel Zwamer suffered greatly as an apostle and a missionary to Islam. And at one point, Bahrain, there was a malaria epidemic and outbreak. And in 1904, he and his wife lost two daughters in one week to malaria a seven year old, Katharina, and a four year old named Ruth. Both of them died the same week. And it forever changed him. Not for the worse, for the better. But it was one of the most painful things, obviously. He ever went through on their tombstone, by the way, on their graves in Bahrain, even to this day, appear these words Worthy is the Lamb to receive riches. Close quote. Could I write that on the tombstone of my daughters? Could you write that on the tombstone of your daughters? So then, those who suffer according to God's will, the second thing I want to drill on for a minute here, drill down on, should commit themselves to their faithful creator and continue to do good. He's reminding true Christians here of the need to be godly, especially when they suffer and not resort to get even tactics. If somebody is hassling them, persecuting them, getting violent towards them. Or in Peter's case here, believers wanting, wanting to kill him. Go back to chapter 3 for just a second. Look at verses 16 and 17. Here's the same emphasis on keeping a clear conscience in the midst of persecution. Verse 16, chapter 3. Keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously against your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. For it is better if it is God's will to suffer for doing good than for doing evil. So he's reminding true Christians here, when they're mistreated, when they're hassled, when they're marginalized, when they're abused, when they're wronged, it's especially important to keep a clear conscience and trust the Lord in their situation and not resort to getting even, which is such a default for all of us because all we're going to do is damage our reputation and the name of Christ. So what are the five things Peter says? The how. And again, this is where the Bible puts most of its emphasis on how we suffer. One, rejoice when insult or hostility or suffering comes our way because we participate in Christ. Two, make sure it's not our own fault that we haven't done something sinful. Three, don't be ashamed. Don't be fear-based like Peter was. Four, make sure you take inventory. Good time to take spiritual inventory of your life and ask, what is it God wants to teach me here? Because all of us have dross that needs to be burned away. All of us do. I certainly do. And number five, commit yourself to God and continue to do good. I want to do two things as I close. One, I want to read the words of a bishop in Mosul, Iraq. And then I want to close with Matthew chapter 5. So I invite you to go back to Matthew 5 for just a second. That's going to be our close. But several years ago, Archbishop... Amel Shimon Nona who was a Chaldean Christian leader in Mosul, Iraq at the time wrote a letter to churches in the west who were facing persecution and death or would be facing persecution and death and about the need to hold firm and he knew what he was talking about because as soon as he was appointed archbishop in Mosul, Iraq Christians started being murdered the next day in greater numbers than normal And a huge persecution was unleashed. And after some reflection on this, he wrote this pastoral letter to churches in the West. And this is just one small paragraph out of that letter. I think it's worth listening to an archbishop who is living in the midst of very hostile circumstances, writing a letter basically to us. This is what he said. The greatest challenge in facing death because of our faith is to continue to know this faith in such a way as to live it constantly and fully. When the individual discovers this possibility, the possibility of living our faith fully in the face of danger, when the individual discovers this possibility, they will be willing to endure absolutely anything and will do everything to safeguard this discovery even if it means having to die in its cause. And so that brings me to the verses I want to end with, and that is Matthew chapter 5, verses 11 and 12, from Jesus himself. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Church, Let's hear the last verse. Rejoice and be glad because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. How's your rejoicing today? Do you know Christ? Are you being hassled, marginalized, opposed, mocked, or rejected? And if so, it's okay to rejoice. not only to persist in Christ, but also to look forward to reward. The Bible commands Christians to look ahead to reward and to be hopeful for what will be theirs someday on the new heaven and the new earth. Father, thank you for the words of Jesus. This is a heavy sermon, heavy words, but it's everywhere in our New Testament. This dual message of we will be persecuted and hated and even killed and yet, don't fear and rejoice. And so I ask for us that you would help us. Father, we have people sitting here in every conceivable sector of our culture the public, the private. I ask that you would give courage to believers here to take a stand, a humble stand, but a courageous stand at school, workplace, neighborhood extended family and that you would help us father to be courageous and not to be fear based and for those here this morning who have been fear based father would you give them a fresh dose of courage to take a stand for you thank you that Jesus himself not only said these words but lived them not only showed us how to live well but how to die well and if we're called up to do that someday, to die for Christ. Help us to follow his example. In Jesus' name. Amen.